I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 21 of Caro Pop. I first met Jody Stevens in April 1993 after a student group at the University of Missouri asked the great cult band Big Star to reunite for their Spring Fest, and miraculously, it did. Almost as miraculously, I convinced the Chicago Tribune's arts and entertainment editor to send me down to Columbia, Missouri to cover Big Star's first concert in almost 20 years. The setting was a tent pitched in a parking lot outside a basketball arena where Brian Adams would be playing that night. As I wrote in my Tribune story, Diana Stevens, wife of Big Star drummer Jody Stevens, was incredulous. Of all the times people ever brought up a Big Star reunion over the years, who would have thought that this would be the place, she said, as she sold souvenir shirts out of the back of her van. I still won't believe it till I see it. But notoriously enigmatic frontman Alex Chilton actually performed with his old bandmate Jody Stevens, plus Jonathan Auer and Kenneth Stringfellow of the Posies, and this version of Big Star continued playing together for years. When I spoke with Jody Stevens for this Carol Pop episode, I was wearing the Big Star t-shirt that I bought from Diana out of the back of their van that afternoon. Big Star was a brilliant, soulful, power-pop band from Memphis with terrible luck that made their music ridiculously hard to find for years. The chief singer-songwriters were Chris Bell, who boasted an obsession for sculpting sound and a Beatles and Birds-like melodic sensibility, and Alex Chilton, who, as the Box Tops lead singer, sang one of 1967's biggest hits, The Letter. section of Jody Stevens and bassist Andy Hummel knew how to hold down a groove, but Stevens also could deliver a Keith Moon level of wallop when needed. Big Star's name was aspirational, as was that of its 1972 debut album, Number One Record. That record featured such indelible songs as The Ballad of El Goodo, the much-covered 13, Rock and roll is here to stay. And In the Street, which years later would become the theme song of that 70s show. Yet thanks to the label's distribution issues, number one record made it to few store shelves and went virtually unheard. Chris Bell was so disheartened that he left and traveled down a dark path, and the remaining three, Chilton, Stevens, and Hummel, went on to make the more ragged, yet perhaps even more inspired, Radio City. That album featured the should-have-been hits September Girls and Back of a Car, as well as the explosive album opener, Oh My Soul. Yet distribution problems dragged down that album as well, and Hummel quit. That left just Chilton and Stevens to make the harrowing, beautiful, Dark Night of the Soul album that went by the titles Big Stars Third and Sister Lovers when it finally came out years after it was recorded. Chilton's songs reflected someone wrestling with powerful demons, while Stevens wrote and sang one of the album's prettiest songs, For You. Sometimes I can tell Jody says his inclusion of a string arrangement on that song led to strings being used all over that album. In the 1980s, Big Star's work became championed and sometimes covered by such bands as The Bangles, R.E.M., The D.B.'s, Let's Active, 
Game Theory, and The Replacements, whose song Alex Chilton declares... Jody Stevens went to work at Arden Studios in Memphis, where Big Star's albums had been recorded and where he still works today. He also has played drums with Golden Smog, a supergroup featuring Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, Gary Loris and Mark Perlman of the Jayhawks, Dan Murphy of Soul Asylum, and Craig Johnson of Run Westy Run. Golden Smog is reunited for two shows in Minneapolis in early April. Jody Stevens is the only surviving original member of Big Star. Chris Bell was killed in a car crash in 1978. Alex Chilton died of a heart attack in March 2010, just days before he, Jody Stevens, and original bassist Andy Hummel were scheduled to reunite on stage at the South by Southwest Festival. Four months later, Hummel died of cancer. Jody continues to play Big Star music live with the Big Star's third project, which includes Mike Mills from R.E.M., Chris Stamey of the D.B.'s, and Carol Popgast, Mitch Easter of Let's Active. Recently, Jody has been writing songs and singing them with Luther Russell as the duo Those Pretty Wrongs. Their music not only sounds like the gentle acoustic stuff from Number One Record, but there's a cool connection to that album that Jody talks about here. Jody Stevens is one of the super nice guys in rock. He takes us through what it felt like when Big Star had high hopes, what the creative partnership between Bell and Chilton was like, and what happened when Chilton and Hummel came to blows and started smashing stuff. Also, what did Chilton mean when he sang, Drummer said you were not very clean. The drummer said you were not very clean. And I know what he means. Please enjoy Jody Stevens and the roller coaster ride that is Big Star on Carol Pop. I'm wearing the shirt that I bought out of your van in I 1993, yeah. which is 29 years. That's crazy that it was so long ago. It's my, um, but that was, that was when I met you. Um, and, uh, and I remember one of the, I mean, there were so many things from that, that concert. It was at Columbia, Missouri. It was in a tent. It was like the, the, the university sort of spring festival. Um, and you guys played sort of late afternoon. Uh, it was right next to this big basketball arena where Brian Adams was playing that night. And and I think one of the things you said to me that really stuck with me was that you'd said this was like the first time you'd ever played a show in which the audience knew the songs. That's true. But it's really outside of the uh, Rock Writers Convention that we played in 1973, May of 73, that John King put together. Right. You know, he gathered something like 120 rock writers, got stacks to foot the bill and and bring them all to Memphis and, and just have a good time with with the under the, his intent was, you know, kind of organizing the writers. So as, as in, you know, a semi sort of union. Uh, so they it, they might be able to raise their pay for what they've written. Like the lady said in, in the big star film, it was like hurting cats. So, Right. How many, how many shows did you actually do in the first incarnation of big star? Like how many live performances do you think there were total? Not many. I, uh, it, it's kind of easy. I think Andy and Chris and Alex and I played high cotton here a couple of times. Uh, we played new Orleans, a festival there. 
Um, and we did this thing that Andy dubbed the BC tour that was Athens, Alabama, a university there in Corinth, Mississippi, and then one other place that uh, that I can't remember. But there there weren't many. I mean, there was no, never like a big star tour. No, we played in Little Rock. We could never find a proper agent nor a proper manager. I mean, nobody was really interested. So you did way more shows with the sort of reunion band that started from 93 and moved forward from then. Sure. Yeah. Even even as a three-piece, uh, we didn't do that many shows. I mean, we did the Rock Riders uh, kind of convention here that really kind of got us back together and back in the studio to do Radio City. And uh, we played live. We opened for Archie Bell and the Drills. You can imagine how we, we went over with their audience. <laughs> uh, you know, one person might clap. It was um, probably Alex. Yeah. But, uh, I can see Alex being into, you know, doing Tighten Up, joining them on stage for that. I could too. I, you know, and, and who knows, he may have even kind of riffed on that for a half a second. Uh, but yeah, it, just a handful of those dates. And you're right. We did more as uh, in the re reincarnation of Big Star with John and Ken. So, so Big Star has become this sort of legendary band for two reasons. One is because the music is fantastic and has this lasting power and you put on those three big star albums and they really don't sound dated in any sort of way. I mean, it's just, it's just sort of amazing. The sort of the clarity and punch and, and everything from those, uh, from those records. And then the other thing is, is how terrible the distribution was on those records. And, um, you know, the fact that, that you made number one record and people really didn't get a chance to hear it or even buy it in stores. And, you know, Radio City came out and the Stacks uh, distribution with Columbia also was screwed up. And then Big Stars Third sat around for a few years. So there was that. I mean, was was being in Big Star, was it was it still fun because you were in a rock and roll band that was making great music? Or did that other stuff kind of weigh you down and weigh down the experience? Well, you know, just to go back to the longevity of the records, uh, aside from from Alex and Andy and Chris paying attention to guitar sounds and parts and, and having, you know, vocals that engage people, uh, John Fry, our, our mentor and, you know, certainly Arden's, he was Arden's owner and our engineer, is the guy that added the sparkle to it. And I think... You know, it's, it's especially sonically, it's uh, he he's the one that added the the longevity to it. Um, you know, yeah, I sorry, your question about distribution. I was just thinking about, oh, wait a minute. John Fry has to be brought up here. The whole distribution thing, it doesn't you know, it's all worked out. Um, and thank God for John King, who is our promo guy here, who got our records into the in the hands of the right writers and uh, music writers and they in turn turned on uh some you know key folks out there like mike mills and and peter buck and and uh you know there, there's there are a few um you know just talking to Susanna hoffs about uh not well actually <clears throat> some so, someone that uh i think her tour manager john kalachi about uh, having Susanna join us for the 50th anniversary of number one record. So, you know, nice. on the bank cut, cut uh, September girls and they released it on, on different light, but there, 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 
other folks that, uh, you know, it was, it, I, I was lucky in that Big Star was a common denominator in, in, in being introduced and, and, and uh, you know, getting to meet a lot of people that I have a lot of respect for. When all of this sort of stuff was going on and the sort of the, the you know, the mishaps in the business that we've all heard about, was it still fun being in the band? Yeah, first thing out of my mouth uh, in, in talking to newcomers to music is don't do it for the money, do it for the fun of it. Right. It, I, because at the end of the day, the fun's guaranteed if that's what you're in it for, because it's a lot of fun. And that whole community that develops there, especially with the nucleus of the band and, and that bond. And uh, But, uh, you know, I wasn't really in it for the money because I, I thought that was an unrealistic expectation. <laughs> I was just in it because... Uh, I had such great admiration for uh, Chris and, and Alex and Andy. I'd known Andy since like the ninth grade or something. And and he's the one that kind of brought me on board. And then Chris was this amazingly talented guy. And then and that formed the nucleus of a band. We did gigs and, and then Alex joined in. So it was, uh, yeah, I'm lucky to be here kind of thing. And, uh, and, and, amazing to be a part of some of these great songs. So you grew up in Memphis and you learned drums. Uh, what was it that inspired you to pick up the drums first? The Beatles, Ringo Starr, you know, hands down, without a doubt. Um, I even told that to Ringo because Ringo introduced <laughs> And this is a little Ringo story. <laughs> I, uh, it's a long story. Klaus Foreman did part of his, 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 uh, Sideman's Journey album here, the kind of retrospective. And, and uh, then he was nominated for a Grammy. I went to uh, a little gathering for him. And while my wife and I, Diana and I, were, were, were waiting for Klaus, we heard that Klaus wasn't going to be able to make it. There had been an accident. And, uh, but at any rate, uh, and then, but Ringo walks in. So I introduce myself and, and then uh, we get a picture and then I'm walking back by Ringo again. He goes, hey, Jody, come here. He said, have you met my friend Jim Keltner? Wow. And I said, Jim's done, done some work at Arden. So he and I talked and he said, well, Jim's the, the best drummer in the world. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, Ringo, you're the guy that got me in this, into this and, and kind of inspired what I do. Uh, and then Ringo looked at me and he said, Jim's the the best. I'm the greatest. <laughs> For me, Ringo is the greatest drummer. I mean, it's uh, drummers are all about being the perfect choice for the music they're playing. And you couldn't have gotten anyone more perfect for that than Ringo. As John Lennon said, when asked about uh, the difference between Pete Best and Ringo Starr, he said, well, you know, Pete Best is a good drummer, but Ringo Starr is a Beatle. Right. There you go. There you I, go. I, I defend because people say, Oh, Ringo is the weak link. And I'm like, are you insane? Like, and, and, and I always tell people, listen to, I saw her standing there, the first song on their first album, and then listen to anything else from that year or like within a couple of years of it. Like, it's just totally different. And then, and then fast forward to their last album and listen to come together. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, he, he played the songs and uh, you know, he wasn't this, he, he didn't draw attention to himself. He just made those songs great. Yeah, I mean, he was very creative. Uh, and like I said, he was king of the shuffle and he could even sing. And remember, Ringo was was a left-handed guy, but he was playing shuffles with his right hand. 
I, uh, yeah, I, I think anybody who talks ring about Ringo in those sort of terms has no idea what they're talking about. They don't play drums. They've never tried to play what Ringo plays. Um, so I, you know, there might be a drummer out there who doesn't have the great appreciation for Ringo that, uh, that most of us drummers do. Uh, but, uh, for the most part, I think it's just kind of onlookers making kind of statements. Did you feel like you were trying to play like Ringo or was it more like you were inspired by him to sort of find your way into each song the way you would do it? Both. Uh, but I don't think I, my attempts usually fell short and that's where, you know, that's how you develop your own personality. And I think that's what happened to the Beatles too. Cause they were, they were covering little Richard and a lot of absolutely. Folk. And while they fell short of sounding just like little Richard, they didn't fall short of delivering a pretty amazing performance and, and, and kind of defining it for themselves. You were in a band ice water with Chris Bell and Andy Hummel, which is basically, you know, big star until uh, big star without Alex Chilton. With, were the three of you kind of bound by that Beatles love and doing that band? And was that something that was common in Memphis or were you sort of outliers at that time? Like, wait a minute, who are these Beatles? you know, Beatley musicians in, you know, Memphis in the early seventies. Yeah. I, you know, I can't say for the whole music community, community, but there, there, uh, but there were, you know, huge music musicians that were huge Beatle fans, but for the most part, what, what got the most attention around here was kind of blues based rock. And there were some great bands um, that did that. Uh, but you know, at least initially, we were kind of, in my limited knowledge of what was going on musically around Memphis, we were the, we were the the only group that was writing songs that uh, kind of inspired by by the Beatles. But I mean, there were other inspirations as well. You know, Chris was a huge Led Zeppelin fan, as was I, and you know, you can see that and you can hear that in, in the street and and feel and and. Uh, and you know that kind of attention to guitar work. I there again. I I don't know. There there are Charlie Watts and and um, the drummer for the, the Booker T and the MGs, Al Jackson, and and his kind of approach to things. And uh, I mean, there are other influences too, but uh, you know, cer certainly Ringo. So it it it's uh, certainly inspired to trying to do do things outside of the ordinary. Uh, to some extent outside of just keeping a beat you know add some sort of personality to the music and then you know there certainly was what would Ringo do here hmm. and Alex Chilton had already had a number one hit at the age of 16 with the letter with the box tops and that band was known as sort of the quote-unquote blue-eyed soul was he was he a you know celebrity to you all like when he and when he sort of was joining the band was it like wait we got this big name or was it just like he's another musician and we're going to make music together i uh you know i know alex and, and chris and andy had a had had a past um uh, alex may have even played in a band with chris i uh i'm sketchy about that hmm. so it uh and alex being you know a memphian um too, I think we all had a tremendous amount of respect for the box tops. Um, you know, the letter hell was what the number one record in the nation in 1967. 
I think it was that that was the top song of all records in 1967. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Alex saw a lot of success with that. And, uh, but I, I wasn't really a follower of the band. Um, you know, I, I, I did try to go see him once actually, but they couldn't get in. Hmm. So it went, it, it, I, I, I wasn't starstruck, um, you know, on, on meeting Alex, I, but I did have a tremendous amount of respect for him. What was the dynamic like between Alex and Chris in terms of writing those songs? Did, did they mostly have their own songs and sort of put the sort of Lennon McCartney kind of credits where they were, they're both, you know, doing them together or were they actually collaborating and coming up with, you know, something like in the, in the street together? You know, usually they they but they would bring the songs and present them at rehearsal, uh, pretty much written. It's, it's, well, for number one record certainly, and and Radio City. Um, well, there may have been maybe a couple of things like Daisy Glaze that we kind of fleshed out and actually got a writer's credit for on on uh, Radio City. Right. But um, I. Yeah, I don't know that. I would think somebody would initiate uh, the song by presenting lyrics in a melody line or a melody line or just lyrics or, you know, not unlike what Luther and I do. Um, and when we started, I, I like had lyrics and melody lines to a couple of songs and, and Luther did arrangements and, and certainly the music. And I... Uh, and then again, you know, to some extent, I would think maybe thirteen was was probably primary Alex. And it's, yeah, I think know. I read that that was when he'd written, like when he saw the Beatles in like sixty four or something like that. Like he actually was pretty young when he wrote that one. Yeah, and Life Is Right on number one record we recorded actually before Alex joined the band, um, from my rec recollection, because it appears on this thing called Rock City that right. we did. Uh, Tom Eubanks and um, I guess Terry Manning was a part of that too. So uh, yeah, I would I, yeah, Ballad of El Goodo. Um, then there's but then there's Watch the Sunrise, and I think there's a version out of that out there with Chris actually doing a vocal, different melody line, different lyrics, but right. same same musically and the that that tuning. You know, Chris was a big fan of Joni Mitchell, so he was into open tunings and stuff. So I've come to have the, the impression that number one record is really like if you're sort of going to split like the Alex and Chris parts of it, that the majority of that record is more Chris Bell in terms of sculpting the sculpting the sound and being obsessive in the studio and having this vision for what it was. And even though people, a lot of people, sort of equate Big Star with Alex Chilton, that Chris Bell really was responsible for a lot of the sound of of number one record is would you say that's true yes uh certainly in in terms of production uh and kind of attention to detail I, you know obviously alex alex is a pretty amazingly talented guy and, and and lent those talents to number one record but in terms of a direction um you know i think that was primarily chris how much were you wrapped up in sort of that notion of, I mean, you know, you call the band big star, the album's called number one record. You know, you've, you probably finished the record thinking you've made something pretty great. How, how wrapped up were you in the, you know, success of that record? 
I was ecstatic because I'd, I'd just been a part of something of songs that I appreciate as much as because I was, you know, I was in a cover band prior to joining up with Chris. I mean, I, you know, my brother and I had a few bands and and I think we did a, a couple of originals or, or something, but never, never this kind of serious effort with with uh, a studio like Ardent and, and, and a mentor and engineer like John Fry. I was just wrapped up in the the the, the success and, and and the way the record hit me when I listened back to it and it sonically and having been a part of this effort with uh, with four other people that it would, that would include John Fry. So I you know I I know there was a tremendous amount of disappointment on Chris Bell's part uh, because we did get a lot of great again there's John King putting the record in the hands of the right people but we got a lot of great reviews and it's just it was unfortunate Al Bell at Stax had had done a deal with Clive Davis at, at Columbia and uh and apparently it was a pretty unique deal and and that all looked great and, and then um Clive promptly left left Columbia um and so Al didn't have the same support with with the other folks at Columbia that he had had with uh, obviously Clive Davis who had done the deal. So that that's kind of how that distribution sort of fell apart. I don't think the the remaining remaining people really wanted to work with Stacks. And you I mean, and you're sort of an outlier on on Stacks because you're this you know poppy you're your power pop band before that that term is really around. I mean you're a rock band that makes really melodic music, but Stacks wasn't known for that. And they were they were so busy kind of retooling their own catalog, putting you know putting out so many records to try to make up for the fact that they lost their catalog to Atlantic that they probably weren't at, you know you probably weren't at top of mind with Al Bell at that point either. So you kind of stuck between I don't know fell through the cracks or whatever the proper metaphor is. Yeah, I don't know that that was the case. I think I think very much we were at the top of Al Bell's mind and and uh, and that's correct he was trying to grow stacks into someone like Columbia or Atlantic uh because they they it, as it turned out like you said they didn't have the Otis Weddings catalog or or I don't think they would have had the staple singers anyway because they were Atlantic artists I, I believe coming into it and Sam and Dave were and so yeah, I you know Al gave us gave us some money for promotion. I uh, and and spent some money, a little money on touring and and uh, yeah, we played Maxis, Kansas City a couple of times and and again, I, I don't think that was Al falling down. I, I think it was just the fact that you know a proper agent wasn't really interested. So I think John King was was instrumental in booking dates and maybe getting writers, music writers in certain cities or to, uh, you know, help book a gig for us. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it was all kind of an unfortunate sort of turn of events. But, uh, you know, I think Stacks were doing what they could and certainly ardent. Part of, you know, being in a rock and roll band for a lot of musicians is having high hopes and then having them not be fulfilled for whatever reason. Uh, were you, were you surprised at the toll that, you know, the, the, the commercial, I don't know, I don't even want to say failure, but because it's kind of the fact that that number one record didn't really take off the toll it took on Chris Bell and that it kind of spelled the end of that band, as opposed to you guys just, you know, brushing it off and going on to the next one, all four of you. 
Yeah, I, uh, I the only thing I can think of is to contrast uh, Chris and uh, well, I can include Andy on this too. Is uh, that was Chris's life? That was Chris was meant to be a creator, uh, a musician, write songs, sing, uh, be as brilliant as he was in the studio. That you know, that was his calling. Andy and I were both going to school because we figured we needed a backup plan. Uh, I was going to university, or it's the University of Memphis now, and he was going to what is now Rhodes College. Um, so kind of we were working on sort of backup plans. And so when it didn't succeed the first time, commercially, being in a band and having a released record not many of those not many of those bands ascend to the point of being able to make a career out of it i don't know maybe two out of 50 or whatever but uh so it wasn't surprising and and again i i wasn't in it for the commercial aspect of it i was in it because it was thrilling and it it, it fulfilled something something in me that uh that i was looking for and yeah i'd read that uh that Chris Bell and Andy had had come to blows, uh, and like, like we had like we're smashing each other's instruments, um, you know. In and you know, I don't know if it's because of the intention after the the album didn't do well or something, but that, that that it becomes sort of a volatile volatile situation. Well, no, you know, Chris was a perfectionist, and uh, and he had known Andy for a long time, and and uh, and with long relationships. You know, sometimes people can can be a bit uh, over the top about how they approach things. But Chris was picking on Andy, essentially. And uh, Andy, being very sensible, was at a rehearsal at Alex's house. Andy, being very sensible, said, you know, I, I think let's call it a day. I, uh, you know, we can come back tomorrow and resume this. And, and Andy put his bass down and, and then was walking toward the front door and Chris made some sort of barbed comment and uh andy got whipped around and went over and and clobbered him and uh you know chris's glasses were all askew and still on his face and then andy turned around and walked out and uh so chris went over and and uh, grabbed andy's thunderbird bass and broke it into three pieces which uh strings and things here reassembled uh, that was great. And then Andy stalked Chris and wound up p- punching some holes in his Yamaha acoustic guitar, uh, which I have. It's Andy gave it to me. Um, you have the guitar with the holes in it? Yes. And it's wow. on all the Pretty Wrongs records, the first two, and it's on this new one as well. And, and, and you know, we use this Gibson 330 or 335. We use that as well. His, his nephew owns that. Uh, but we get to use that on on sessions, borrow it. You know, it sounds great. I had some work done to it. And, and my brother, Jimmy, put some tape over the holes back in the 70s. Uh, but it uh, it sounds great. What was what was Alex's relationship with Chris at the time that Chris left? I mean, were there, was there tension between the two of them or was he just sort of sitting back and watching Chris sort of unravel at that point? I don't think there was tension between Chris and and anyone in the band, uh, really. It's just his frustration with the the lack of success of number one record. 
because he started working on songs that ended up on Radio City, like uh, Back of a Car and Oh My Soul. That's correct. And as as Alex said in some interview, uh, Andy wrote a lot of the lyrics for Back of a Car. And mm-hmm. it's something Andy would write, actually. Because Andy t- tended a little more toward innocence and stuff. And right. That's uh, what's Back of a Car certainly uh, fits that. When when Chris left, was it clear to you that there would be another Big Star album, or did you think, oh, we might be just one and done? Well, we drifted apart, and like I said, John King got this rock writers uh, convention together, and and they all wanted us to play. And uh, you know, Alex said sure, so Andy and I agreed as well, and and we wound up playing, and and it uh, what an audience. You know, they 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 had come prepared with uh, drink and recreational other recreational things. <laughs> you feel good, uh, and it was just crazy. It was crazy, uh, but with the receptions was so amazing that you know we came back together and, and uh, did Radio City, and then and then Alex in the meantime had had gotten together with Richard uh, Rosebro and uh danny jones the bassist and they recorded what's going on uh mod lang and she's a mover and those those songs are actually on radio city but it's not really big star in the sense that you you and andy aren't even on them exactly yeah it's uh alex recorded those in that interim time between uh number one record and then the three of us getting back together and i uh you know, Andy might be bass playing bass on one of those songs, uh, but that'd be interesting to know. I've heard different things, but at any rate, Richard Roseborough was just a remarkable drummer. I, it, uh, the tempos he could do, like what's going on, uh, he added this profound soul to to and depth to anything. He, did, you know, Richard did "I Am the Cosmos," right. Um, and then, uh, you know, Maud Lang just sounds pretty, she's a mover. I, uh, so we actually, we tried to record those ourselves, the three of us. And uh, it just wasn't working out as, as cool as those three were. So we used those. So you were, you were fine with those being on the album, even though they're not technically or specifically Big Star? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I liked Richard as a, as a person too, so I was glad that he was on. Radio City definitely has a looser vibe to it. It's less fussed over than Number One Record, and you know the songs on it are fantastic. Was that a more fun record for you to make as a musician, drummer? It was different because it wasn't my first record. I mean, this was my second record uh, and second time of being in the studio with with John Fry. So as it, there wasn't the anxiety about ooh, or, or doubt about, you know, creating drum parts for these songs. Um, and right after number one record, I'd gotten a new drum kit courtesy of uh, John Fry. I don't know. And some new drumsticks. And I'd taken this little percussion class that was even outside of drumsticks. I mean, you know, pulling a straw through, through a, uh, to go cup lid and I mean there are all kinds of percussion ideas that this teacher explored but uh, it kind of got me back into flams and and uh, 
flamadiddles and and that sort of thing and and paradiddles and and uh it kind of inspired but what, what you hear on oh my soul and some other things but uh in that regard it was more fun uh because i was more more relaxed going into it um and things were I, you know things came pretty easily for number one record like like Ballad of El Gudo and, and that stuff. And it that came pretty quickly. I just kind of took a minute to think about how roles might develop through the song. But Oh My Soul came pretty fast. Uh, and then Life is White. Uh, that was cool. That, that all... But, you know, oh, even Oh My Soul kind of evolved over a period of time because we'd worked it up and I think we'd even played it a couple of times. Um or at least once live before we went in the studio. Oh, my soul is such a sprawling song. I mean, you're, you have so many different parts. I mean, there's so many different parts of that song and you get to play so many different styles on it. I mean, it's, it's a rock song. It's a soul song. It's got this kind of funky energy going on. It keeps sort of turning on a dime. Um, so it's, it's much more complex part for you than anything on number one record. I would think. It is. And I've just, uh, you know, I thought I, I might be playing that at a benefit uh, here recently. And, and so I started going back through it again. And uh, we didn't play it in Big Star in part. I mean, John and Ken and I could have done it, but it uh, it it takes more than a minute to get that song together. The ferocity of it all. Um, but uh, I'm really proud of that song. Yeah. I mean, certainly, but you know, Alex, it's like the the clarion call or, or the the that that ringing out of the 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 way he starts. Oh, my soul! It's just so inspirational, and and uh, you know, it's it's an injection of you know two hundred thousand volts electricity or something. It's a fantastic way to open an album. It's just you know, when I first put it on, I was like, wow, and 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 again, having. Having only having only heard Big Star's third because I'm going backwards. Having that be the first song from you know the the next Big Star album, I was like, okay, this is this is different. Uh, this is a different mood than Big Star's third, and it really just jumps out of the speakers. And it's big. It's a really big sounding song and big sounding record. Yeah, that's John Fry, and and uh, people have gone through the multi tracks because we still have those. Uh, for for uh, Radio City and and you know there there were over other overdubs but it it got uh, they can it all got pared down to just really what was needed and what served the song best and and that's how you hear it. When when Alex brought any of those songs in, did you think, oh, September Girls, that's a hit, that's a radio song, or I don't know, you get what you deserve is a song that I think a lot of people don't know, but you know, that's something that I feel like should be in rotation on radio all the time right now. At the end of it all, yeah. I, I mean, I thought they were great songs, but but to tell you the truth, John Fry made them great records. Mm. Uh, just how, how he treated things sonically in his mixes. and uh, But yeah, I thought September Girls would be you know something radio friendly, and and uh, to to just explain, I uh, Andy Hummel came up with the album title Radio City, because back then, you know, if something if something was a drag, you might say Drag City, right? 
you tag things with cities. So, it, it, you know, we had, Andy thought the album's radio ready, so he called it Radio City. Yeah, I love that. I love that meaning of it because you think of, oh, is it a you know reference to New York or whatever? It's like, no, it's like that's Bummer City because it wasn't good and Radio City because we're on the radio. And so right. both of those album titles are very aspirational. Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a byproduct to that name that that added some largesse to it, as in you know Radio City, the music music hall. But but that wasn't the intention. And then again, the the distribution is goofed up. You guys don't really get to tour to support it. And like, what was what was going through the aftermath of that record compared to the first one? Was there just a sense of oh, here we go again? I guess, yeah. I mean, we we got great reviews, and then there was there was for me there was plenty to be thankful for. We, you know, Andy and Alex and I toured and went back. To, well, we went to Maxis, Kansas City for the first time, and uh, we went twice. One. We, I guess Ed Begley Jr. was part of the bill as a stand-up comic. Uh, and the other time was the Butts Band, who were the remnants of the Doors. And I got to go to New York City. That was, you know, and when Andy, Andy and Alex and I went, we stayed at the Plaza. Uh, so that was a great experience. I, there were so many great experiences that, uh, you know, it's not being finding its way to commercial success didn't really bug me. Well, Alex has always come off as someone who doesn't really care about commercial success. Would, would you say that was true or is that, is that sort of a defense he built up because he just kind of was put through it a lot? I would say that's true. I, I can't speak for him, but uh, if he's like I am, I just, I just write to, to whatever you know, I'm feeling and whatever lifestyle I'm, I'm leading at the time. And I think to me, that's where Alex went, which was just, it was a reflection of his lifestyle. And that's why he was so brilliant. And his songs were so engaging. Were the three of you personally close at that point, or was it really more of a sort of professional musician relationship? I got to tell you, the bond that Alex and I had was music. And uh, I mean, we never really hung out much together. And like I said earlier, Andy and I would kind of hang out via our, our common friend, Mike Fleming. Um, but uh, other than that, I, you know, I had to work. Um, I did several things, wait tables. I was the doorman at the, at the grotto in Overton Square. I checked IDs and because uh, you only had to be 18 at that point. Um and I was always, I was working, I was going to school, I had a girlfriend, so I had a lot, a lot of things to keep me busy outside the band. Well, and, and Andy, after Radio City, ended up just going back to school full-time, and that was sort of it with him and the band then. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's, he's kind of saw the writing on the wall with, with its, its, his not being able to make a career out of it, and he was... And that's what he was all about was, you know, to determining a career path for himself. And so he went back to school and uh, graduated from from what is now Rhodes and uh, I think English lit or he was an English major. And then he went to a tech school here uh, and got uh, an associate's degree in mechanical engineering and then went on to get a master's in finance. <laughs> but that he was... Yeah, he wanted to start a family and kind of get on with life. 
I was just playing things a little more loosely. And you guys had another bassist for a while. You did some shows. Right. Yeah. John Lightman joined in and, and uh, we played Max's Kansas City and, and we opened for Badfinger and uh, in Boston. Max's Kansas City in New York City and then Badfinger in Boston and then came down and played an Agora Club date or something. And you and you guys and Badfinger could have shared sort of management distribution nightmare stories at that point, I would think. Well, not management, because we didn't have it. We didn't have anybody ripping us off. But uh, it it's interesting because we didn't I never said a word to any of those guys. I, uh, they'd just gotten back from Japan, uh, the bad finger guys. And, uh, you know, I was, I was a bit starstruck and didn't really know. And they were, they were, I, pay, I walked by their dressing room and they were sort of boisterous and loud. And, and I thought, Ooh, you know, I think I'll just let this one be. I was pretty shy and timid. I, I wouldn't hesitate a second to, to, to go and introduce myself now, but, uh, Back then. And then and then we didn't get to we did two shows with them and only got to, to hear about two or three songs of uh, of each for some reason. Oh, for them? Yeah, because I was a big Badfinger fan. How did they sound? Great. They sounded awesome. I, if I could go back in time and see a double bill of Big Star and Badfinger, that would make me very happy. Yeah, if I could, I'd love to see Badfinger live, and that because it was called the Performance Center, it was a killer venue. Do you after that? Did you think Big Star was continuing as as a band, or I mean, I know you you went back in the studio with Alex, but did you think at the time, okay, we're recording Big Star's third album, or was it just sort of we're just going to make music and see what it is? I there was a little bit of both. I for me, it was recording Big Star's third album, but Alex did bring up. Uh, you know, we ought to call ourselves Sister Lovers. It wasn't an album title. It was going to be a band name. Huh. Uh, because the two of you were dating sisters. Right, yeah. And uh, and they weren't twins. They were a year apart or so. Uh, but anyway, so I, we never really talked much about that. It was just more about the music and and, uh, and, and getting that done. What did you think of those songs when he was introducing them to you for the first time? The ones that ended up on Big Star's third. Well, I, you know, you have songs like Nighttime and and Blue Moon that are just gorgeous, and and yeah. uh, and Downs. It was like it took me a minute, more than a minute actually, because uh, it was as it was going down, it was striking me differently than than the way the mixes would strike someone these days because John Fry was brilliant and 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 uh, what he did with the weirdness, not really certainly not covering it up, but making the weirdness more musical um, in the way he placed things in the mix and all that. So, and, and that, and, and, and it was Alex's lifestyle at the time too, that was a bit dark that colored the way I heard it and, and what went down. And, and, you know, there are things like Jim Dickinson played drums on kangaroo because Alex essentially handed him a, uh, a vocal and acoustic guitar 
guitar tracks and said, produce this, Mr. Producer, as the story goes. And, and Jim huh. played all the, all the stuff around it. I mean, it, it really is Jim Dickinson with a guest appearance by Alex. And, and it depends on how you look at it, you know, of course. But of course, when Alex turns in a song on an acoustic guitar, for me, he's one of those few people that could do that. And it would be a complete thought. It was it was really all you needed. It's just his voice and, and the acoustic guitar. But Jim made it into this, I mean, for Kangaroo, this just really bizarre thing that, uh, you know, now it's just, it's uh, pretty amazing. But, you know, then it, in part, here's where we're not unlike the Beatles. I, I, I brought in Carl Marsh to do string arrangements for For You and Alex thought that was a good idea and uh, after he heard it and so he he sat down and talked to Carl about doing more stringer arrangements and that's what adds kind of a, a whole new dimension to things and, and an, right. an atmosphere because like nighttime it uh, those icy strings and that it really it's uh, it helps you live and be a part more of a part of the song I think yeah Stroke and Noel also I mean it totally yeah. defines that yeah. And for you is a is a solo Jody Stevens composition and a really beautiful song. It, it sort of grounds that album in a way like it's it's just a, it's just a really it fits in totally. And yet it doesn't have that quite unsettling tone of a lot of the record. How did that uh, how did you end up writing that one? Well, like I said earlier, Andy had given me uh, Chris Bell's acoustic guitar. And I got Alex to show me some chords and, uh, you know, basically a lot of Beatle chords. Um, and I sat down and wrote for you on, on that acoustic guitar, um, brought it in. And, uh, of course, Alex played it a lot better than I could, but that's, that's basically how it came about. And you sang it as you sang, you know, way out west on the last record, and and you know, you you got the the occasional lead vocal, and it sounded really great. No oh, thanks, I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, I was excited about it, having written a song, and certainly having uh, Carl Marsh do string arrangements, and the strings are beautiful. Certainly, the magic part of that song. Yeah, that album, aside from for you and a few other exceptions, does have that feeling of someone kind of going through some sort of breakdown or becoming a little unhinged at that point. Is that what was actually going on with Alex at that? Or was it, that's just sort of what the songs were doing? No, that's, it reflects what was going on with Alex. Was that, was that hard for you to be around or? Yes. And, and it's not like it was that way all the time, you know, especially not so much when we were in the studio together, it's just, uh, events that that surrounded being in the studio that were you know either before or after um so it wasn't so much being in the studio with him that you know his his particular lifestyle it his particular lifestyle really didn't get in the way of anything with the album but when you're referring to stuff before or after he was in the studio what is what is that just oh just uh well, you know, John Fry talked about it. It's when Arden was on National from 1966 to November of 71. Nationals, <clears throat> that studio was in the middle of nowhere. 
so we'd go and stay pretty focused and and uh in in working and it was also a newer relationship with with john and but by the time we moved here our current location on on madison avenue it uh overton square was cranking up and it's just two blocks down and they they'd uh lowered the drinking age to 18 so all of a sudden you have you have the the baby boomer entertainment center of this whole region uh in full force and and so there was a lot of drink and whatever else going on too so that's what i mean it's just more of uh indulging in in extracurricular imbibements or ingestions did did you go through your own phase with that or were you able to sort of steer steer clear of it no i i i was lucky i uh i never i i did uh quaaludes the first i quaalude the first time with andy and uh it was awesome. <laughs> I never felt so comfortable with myself. And then I did it one other time and, and uh, they no longer make quaaludes, so I don't mind talking about them. Um, but I did it one other time and felt the same way. It was like a good drunk, but without the, without the, the stomach repercussions. Um, but it just, it just added this level of comfort with myself. Um, so I did it the second time and had that feeling. And again, I thought, you know, I, I better not do this anymore. It could be habit forming. And smoking pot, I never really liked. I tried a few times and uh, never even tried smoking. I never even smoked pot. I tried once before Big Star and a couple of times after. And drink, I could never afford. I couldn't go out afford to go out to a you know, get sloused every now and then I would if, if, cause we, one of the, this record promoter had an office here at Ardent and, and, and if he ever had a table at Lafayette, we'd go sit at his table and, and, you know, the drinks would be on his bar, bar tab cause he was, he was, uh, he was entertaining, you know, radio disc jockeys and people promoting his records. So. So I get yeah, it. Never really became a problem for me. It seems like you were the, you were the clear eyed. I mean, Andy Andy sounds like he was pretty clear eyed too. But you you guys are clear eyed people in this band, and w- with two you know front men, lead singers who really kind of unraveled in their own ways. And I'm wondering if that was particularly difficult to sort of watch happen and then happen again with you know each person. Well, the good thing that came out of it, Alex got some pretty amazing songs out of it, uh, as did Chris, uh, you know, with I'm the Cosmos and stuff. Right. It was tough to watch, sure, because you wonder, you wonder where this leads to in the future. And that's what was always on my mind. What does this lead to in the future? And uh, how, does, how is this building towards something that uh, is going to help me to enjoy life later on? And that, right. that that question was always, always on my mind. And that's kind of kept me, that kind of kept me kind of headed toward the direction of, you know, of an education and, and trying to figure out something that I, that I can uh, establish a career on if music didn't work. You're and surrounded so, by these cautionary tales. 
Yeah, I. Uh, but Chris, you know, he got into managing. His dad owned a, a chain of roast beef stores called Danvers, as in Dan uh, Turley and Vernon Bell. Um, but he was managed those, and he took a lot of pride in that. Worked his butt off, and I mean, you know, he wasn't the owner's uh, child that you treat in a pampered way. He he got in and you know did the work, and so it you know it looked like. Um, of course, I figured that was a stepping stone to other things for him. Uh, at least that was a good sign that that he could find his way in the world outside of music if he had to. And Alex, I don't, I just figured Alex would be a musician forever, you know, which he was because he, uh, he just had that, he had the talent and the, and the voice and the, and all that, but he had something else too, that, um, they kind of would get him through later in life. I thought. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, the music, that he did after Big Star was even more kind of pushing the casual listener away. It was pretty difficult music for a while, at least. And uh, it seems like his personality from from stuff I've read, because I didn't know him, also was was kind of difficult. And there was this sense of him, I don't know, just kind of pushing out. And I'm not sure where that, that came from. I read biography of him, and I still wasn't sure where that came from. Yeah, I don't know. I... Uh... I have no idea. And were you still in touch with, with Chris in the years after Big Star? Sure. I uh, We'd talk from time to time and even play tennis uh, from time to time because he was big on tennis for a while uh, and played on some of I Am The Cosmos. According to Richard Roseborough, I played on four tracks, uh, one of which is called Getaway. And I think there are two versions of Getaway, but... The one I played on has a lot of it has slap back on the drums and it's just very busy and and, and uh, clattering, if I might use that word, on my part. Right. And and he was for for listeners who don't know, Chris Bell died in a car crash in seventy eight, which which I imagine was a shock to everyone at the time. He had the one single out. Uh the 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 rest of that album came out much later on Ryko disc, I think in the early nineties. And it's fantastic. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a shock and, and, uh, and horrifically sad, uh, for us all around here, you know, John Fry and, and for me and for John Dando and Steve Ray. And, uh, cause you know, I, Chris was a pretty deep fellow and, 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 and the connections to him run deep, you know, in, in a sense, because of a, a part of that. And then having been a part of the band and that bond there, uh, it was shocking. I wanted to go back actually to a song on Big Star's third, uh, You Can't Have Me. Um, that's a, it's a very intense drum part on your part and i'm wondering if there were like a lot of takes or was that one where you just sort of went wild and they said all right let's let's keep that one because it's really got a lot of power and and you know sort of a almost chaotic energy to it yeah i i actually overdubbed at least one other kid on that in the in in the uh, the middle part of it and at the end of it 
maybe a couple of other things just to make it sound wacky. Yeah. Um, that would make sense if there's more than one drum part going on at the end, because that's, there's a lot of percussion there. Yeah. And it was just supposed to be kind of chaotic and, and clashing and clamoring, I guess. And certainly, you know, Keith Moon was a, you know, for me, I could tell that I listened to Keith Moon more than once. Hmm. And and uh, in the lyrics of that, uh, Alex sings, the drummer said you were not very clean and I know what he means. What did you mean? I uh, I don't know. People ask at, at, from time to time, ask me that. I have no idea. You, you never asked Alex, what, what was that about? No. You know what's weird? I never could have been a different drummer, you know, could have been a different drummer he was talking about. Never asked asked Alex about anything, really. I mean, I had this curiosity about I was your butch and you were touched because I just figured it was what it was. But the reality of the I was your butch and you were touched was that it wasn't Alex, I was your butch being a tough guy. It was Alex, there was a, a cartoon character. I think uh, it was a little puppy dog called Butch and he would follow his owner around. And that's what, that's what Alex was, was uh, referring to. He would follow the girl around like a little puppy dog. Uh, But, you know, Chris Damey told me that one. Um, Yeah. I wouldn't have known that. And I get, I never always thought in Daisy Glaze, I always thought he said soon be back in drag. And I thought, (laughs) what a a cool line because it sparks your imagination and whoa what does he mean by that uh which is always fun to do in writing a lyric but he's actually singing not soon be back in drag he's singing soon be begging drags begging cigarette drags oh and and which is cool too but i never heard it that way that's that's really when you're down and out if you're begging drags so i don't know i have no idea so, so Big Star's third is recorded like late 74, maybe into 75, came out in 78. Um, and then Big Star Reunion, 1993. Were you working at Ardent in the period between that? Like, what were you spending most of your time doing in that 15-year stretch? Uh, going to school. Always seemed to have a girlfriend. Um, working. Uh, playing in other bands, played with Keith Sykes uh, for a tour. That was fun. Keith wrote, a, you know, was in the Coral Reefer band with Buffett and wrote a song and co-wrote a song for Buffett, as he did with John Prine and some stuff. Keith runs Ardent now. Uh, so I did that. Was in different bands. Um, group called The Suspicions was kind of a balls to the wall sort of pop punk band. Um, I, uh, yeah, I had, um, finished school, had a marketing, was a marketing major and called John Fry about using him as a, him as a reference, John Fry, the owner of Ardent. And, uh, right. He said, sure. Glad to say some nice things. And then he called me back and said, wait a minute, we're establishing a position here. Uh, we want to start a production company and we want to to, to uh, boost our marketing effort. And so I came and interviewed and got the job. Uh, so that was 87. And it was so from here, January of 87, 
through now. Um, so yeah, I was here at Arden for part of that time in 93 and hence, you know, Arden has, has a vested interest in big stars. So it, I, I was lucky enough to go out and pursue big star dates and with Alex and John and Ken. Had you, had you stayed in touch with Alex all that time or had you not heard with from him for a while? I hadn't really heard from him. The guys that called Mike Melba Hill and, and, um, I'll think of his name in a minute, called and, you know, asked me if I'd like to be join Alex on some big star songs. And I said, sure. And I said, you know, if Alex is in, I'm in. And they found a number for Alex and called him. And and then they went looking for, for two other people to, to join in and, and didn't have any success. So I told him to call um, John Auer, whom I'd met through Gary Gersh in 91. And, and uh, and then Ken came. Ken said, "Whoa, wait a minute! I play bass." So uh, they both of those guys came in, and they were the perfect choice. Um, yeah, I remember seeing the Posies before they joined Big Star. I was a fan of those Posies records, and and they were covering "I'm the Cosmos" in their live shows. So when I when I heard they were joining Big Star, I thought, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." Well, yeah, that and they released this record of "I'm the Cosmos" in feel, I think, uh, this forty five. Or at least it was a seven inch, um, and the, and their versions were so dead on it. I just thought, oh, you know, it's these guys are a perfect choice for this, and they were. And you didn't think that Alex would say yes? I, to tell you the truth, no, I didn't think he would say yes. Yeah, I remember they and 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 then Zoo was doing a live record, and uh, I remember that they wanted they wanted you guys to redo like a couple of the songs and Alex was just like, no, that's rock and roll. I think that, uh, don't lie to me might've been the one. And they're like, could you redo this? He said, no. And then, uh, and then after thing to redo anything, but, uh, cause God don't lie to me kills. It does. I'm trying to think what, what it was. I know that they left off. Um, I'm Oh my soul, but I thought it was a different song that they they approached him about saying, Hey, can we just do another, do another take of this live? And he's like, no, this was a, that was our concert. That's it. Yeah, and um, and there's and it's funny because there's actually a YouTube video of people talking to him, quote unquote, backstage. I mean, it wasn't really backstage; it was in the parking lot. But but I'm there, and and I ask him if he if he wants to do this again, and he says no. <laughs> and I'm right. glad he changed his mind. I am too. I because uh, we, we, we yeah we had some really fun dates out of that. We played the Grand in London. We played London a few times and. We did played the Reading Festival and uh, festival in Holland, and I don't know. We got we got to go, get, got to go to Japan in '94. That was fun. Again, you know, still a little more than a handful of dates. But over the years, I you know, we may have played a couple of gigs a year. I, I know there was one time when we went like two and a half years without playing. Uh, but then we we might do a string of dates, like six dates or. So, but that was good. It kept me on my toes, kept me uh, practicing and playing on my own to keep my chops up. Yeah, I remember you talking at the time about how you've been keeping your chops up and you sounded really fantastic in that show. Was that, was that show uh, the, in Columbia, was it, was it sort of a nervous energy? Did it feel good to you or was it like a little bit of a you know, runaway train and, and you're just like, oh, how's, how's this going to go? I think it was kind of all of that. And that's why, I mean, there, there is this 
for me, this really cool energy to that performance. Jim Ron Danelli engineered it, mixed it, right. did a killer job of that. And uh, so, so we're lucky there. Uh, yeah, but yeah, there was certainly a nervous energy uh, on my part. And uh, I can't speak for everybody, but you know, we had a couple of, we rehearsed a couple of times in Seattle with John and Ken. I, uh, John and Ken and I got together the night before. I think Alex arrived the morning of, and we ran through some things at Soundcheck. And so, uh, gee, what's not to be nervous about? Because uh, you know, we didn't have that much of a running start on it. I remember Alex's version when he sang 13, he sang it in the sort of lecherous tone or that was my interpretation because he kept throwing in like hey baby and things like that in the middle of 13 and i, I noticed that was not included on the original uh live album but then came out in the sort of complete bonus uh record store day vinyl version years later oh that's too funny i think hey baby was alex's go-to thing for a lot of ad libs. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, when it's coming from a 47 year old guy singing about a 13 year old, it was like, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that might've had something to do with why they left it off. Cause that's become one of his most beloved songs, 13. I hear a lot of people covering that one. Yeah. I, uh, uh, one of which, you know, maybe to digress a little bit, Monopri, this French grocery store chain did a music video of 13, hmm. uh, and it was longer than the track itself, so they 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 edited it and so repeated some of the song. Uh, but it's a very cool uh, video that advertises their store, but yet it's really a music video. And then uh, Grace Vanderval stars in this movie called Star Girl, and uh, she turns her boyfriend on to big star pulls the album out number one record and puts on 13 so you hear the song in its entirety and then they do a version together and then she does one by herself so you know and certainly wilco early on did a version of 13. Right. a lot of you know jeff buckley you, you, um but that's that's another song it's uh can't get covered kangaroo and i actually got to see him do that live at the south end here in memphis and he was just amazing he and his band they were truly a band. Wow. Yeah, there's another one lost uh, too soon. Um, yeah. I remember seeing the reunion band at Metro in Chicago a couple of years after the Columbia thing, I think it was. And and Alex made some wisecrack that totally pissed you off. And I saw you afterward and you were really mad. It was the introduction to uh, you guys recovering Todd Rundgren's slut. And he, like, he kind of looks over at you and goes this one's for Jody's wife. And you were just like, afterwards, you, you, you said, you said that he's like, you just, when you think you're warming up to a guy, he pulls something like that. Something like that. Yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, it uh, completely pissed me off and I talked to him about it and he was apologetic. And so was he someone who actually would apologize for something like that? Well, I'm not quite sure what it was, but for Alex, it was an apology. I mean, he really liked, Diana, my wife. Uh, so it, it, I don't know where that was coming from. I think, you know, I think one thing he may have explained it was that that uh, she was such, such an unlikely person to say that about, uh, that that's why he said it. 
Um, but but you as her as as her you know husband sitting behind the drum kit was not appreciative of those possible nuances of his wisecrack yeah no of course not how did you guys get along in general i mean was he you know did you sort of were you closer this time than you were you know originally or was it more like you sort of did your own thing and came together on stage i did it was more we did our own thing and came together on stage and it's funny even with john and ken uh us being in the band we would when we would do a little tour we i can remember we had dinner once together outside of that you know we'd go to some place and and i might run into john uh like in malaga spain yeah it's maybe running into john at a, at a restaurant there outside of but we, we never seemed to do anything together and I think a lot of bands are like that. So two th- in 2010, I think it was, was when you were all going to, you and Andy and and Alex were going to reunite at South by Southwest. And and uh, and Alex had a heart attack like the day before or something like that. Or it was on a Wednesday and we were to play that Saturday. Right. So, yeah, I think it was right, right before South by Southwest was starting maybe. But I, I, um, I just remember being just... A, finding the news devastating as someone who's just been a fan for so long and also just imagining what it would have been like to be down there within those that particular circumstance and having that happen right before then. It was. Uh, Alex's wife called me and I was in the middle of the convention area, in the middle of registration at South by Southwest. And uh, it was like this this curtain surrounded me and, and uh, it it, it God, it was such a weird, um, sad sort of feeling. And then I, I spoke to the person that, that uh, well, I took, I probably took 15, 20 minutes of not saying anything to anybody and then uh, talked to the person that had booked it. And uh, everybody was just really and wanting to accommodate us in, in any regard. And, and that's when, you know, John and Ken said, hey, we need to turn this into a tribute to Alex. Did you imagine at that point that the tribute would continue as long as it has? Because really, you and you know this community of musicians have been able to get together, you know, f- f- relatively often to do these big stars third shows and just pay tribute to the music and keep the music on stage. And you and you know Mitch Easter and Chris Damian and Mike Mills and all these other people being able to keep playing it. I uh, yeah, thank God for Chris Damian. Uh, it was his idea, even before Alex passed away, to do uh, a Big Star's third live show and, you know, complete with string section. And, and then, of course, Chris, in his great imagination, added some other things that worked out pretty brilliantly, like, you know, some horns and a percussionist. And, you know, we've done it. We played, uh, you know, festival in Spain and, and Barcelona, and we played... Uh, London, the Barbican in London. We played Memphis a couple of times, LA, and kind of all over this Australia. So it's, I love playing music and I love uh, the fact that there's this community that, that gets together, not only to play it, but to listen. And to be a part of that is, is, is uh, always uh, kind of, it's the reward for me. I mean, I certainly don't do it for the money. Because it's there's there's so many of us we don't really make any money but it's a good time. Hey 
Of the music the Big Star made, what is what of it sort of stands out to you the most this many years later? I mean, it's the 50th anniversary year of Big Star number one record, which is kind of crazy to me. But is you know, it, I mean, Big Star's third is the one that's getting these concerts. Is that the one for you, or is it really just this combination, or is there one album that stands out? Well, for me, it's it's how anybody that's had to listen to all three albums it's whatever opinion they have is formed from all three albums because they're 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 all different from each other and so to pick one might represent it they all represent a period of time and lifestyle that we were leading so you know there was there was a bit of innocence uh certainly about number one record the radio city got a little more worldly and sophisticated and and it's in its attitude and then certainly the third album sort of what it was an, an emotional unraveling is is well in part as you were talking about but uh so it's i don't know that if if there were a song that that was to define big star i would say ballad of el goodo because it's 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 a little bit about all that big star was ever about really um but it's hard to pick one. Yeah, I, I can't tell you the truth. Well, you don't have to. So we're good. Yeah, so yeah. Let's your lucky day. Um, yeah, Ballad of El Goodo is a yeah, it's just the second song on the first album, and it's got that ringing guitar sound and very earnest uh, vocal and lyric, and and uh, the whole band comes in, and you have beautiful yeah. harmonies on it. So it really does have everything. Yeah, it does. Um, but of course, it's Alex singing it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm grateful to be able to to hear all three of them. And <laughs> it's true that each one occupies its own, you know, space. And then you have in space, which is the fourth one that came, the reunion album that came later. That's sort of its own thing. Yeah, in space is definitely its own thing. You know, the the whole idea behind that record was to write and record fifteen songs, I think. Uh, so, you know, none of the writing really started before we all got together in the studio. And uh, I wrote a couple of things. Uh, like one night before a session, I wrote uh, February's Quiet for a lot of it. And then John and Hour and I got together the next morning and finished it. And we cut it that day. And, and then uh, another song, the same, pretty much the same thing. And Alec, uh, John and Ken would contribute, and then Alex would come up with some things. And uh, I got to tell you that that first week of recording, I had no idea what we had because it was just some instrumentation. That was about it. Uh, and Ryko Disc had gotten into it. Just uh, it was a leap of faith because they didn't know what they were getting. You know, they they didn't have demos to listen to or any idea of where the album was going. Uh, but they gave us a little budget and, you know, we were off and running. But it, it in its own way, it has its place in, 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 you know, Big Star's life. Right. And and around that time was when you started playing with Golden Smog, I think. Um and that was you and maybe even a little earlier, but it was that was you playing with well, Jeff Golden Smog and Gary Loris. Yeah, I joined in 97. We recorded for a week in 97, in like January or February, and then another week in 98 here, both in Studio C. And 
and the album came out in 98. So right. And so after, so after that, Big Star got back together, but before you recorded in space. Yeah. And then I did like four songs with Golden Smog in 2005, I think it is, on the, on the, the uh, Another Fine Day record. And then we were, at some point, we were on stage with Alex um, in London. And Alex said, these guys don't know it yet, but we're going to record another record. Or we're going to record a record together. And we were all excited about hearing that. And then didn't hear much about it for a year or so. And then he, Alex and I talked about how he wanted to do it. And I, I called Ryko Disc and, and presented the idea to him. And uh, Jeff Rugby there was in and, and he got his boss, William Hine, to sign on. So we were off and running. And that was like the one time you actually had a record that you recorded that came out after you recorded it, got distribution and you were able to support it. It was like being in a normal band almost. It was. Yeah. People could actually buy the records. And and you're gonna you're you're going back to do more dates with Golden Smog now? Uh, April 2nd and 3rd in Minneapolis, we have two dates at uh, First Ave that I'm really excited about. Are you gonna? Is there gonna be anything more than that? Are you guys gonna record again? I I don't know, but sure, I ho- I'm hoping it at least uh, uh, initiates some more gigs together. But you know, Jeff's a really busy guy, and then Gary and Mark have the Jayhawks, and 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 Danny's got a his own little business, and I think he's still doing Soul Asylum. Not sure, but it it's kind of tough to get this particular lineup together, uh, but. But very yeah. cool that you get to do it. I have so much fun doing this. It's just, uh, it's hard to describe. It's its why I keep walking into Studio C here and sitting down and playing my drums every day. Just, in, and I've been including Golden Smog songs for the last, let's say 2006, I think is the last time we played together. Um, so, you know, I've kind of kept the hope alive through just, uh, keeping my chops up. Good for you. That's, well, that's great. I'd love to hear, hear you, you playing live again. And you've been doing, making these, those pretty wrong records with Luther Russell and, and they're really lovely. Like they're really nice. Um, just nice songs. You're, you're, you're singing lead on them. They've got this acoustic guitar going on and you mentioned that it's, it's Chris Bell's old guitar, which is interesting because the note I wrote to myself was sounds like side two of number one record, which is the acoustic side. Yeah, it's it's another thing. You know, you keep you 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 keep your chops up and your you sort of your iron in the fire and stuff. And and uh, I was lucky enough with Arden that part of my job was, or a great part of my job was networking, and uh, and so. In pursuit of that, I, I wound up meeting Luther Russell in '91, and and uh, you know through the same guy that introduced me to John and Ken. And to fast forward, there's this big star documentary coming out. Nothing can hurt me, and they want me to sing some big star songs at a screening, and uh, so I invite Luther along because you know I'd known him for a while and and known what a really fantastically talented guy he is and enthusiastic he's that's one of his talents he's a big cheerleader too uh he just made the whole process easy so we we started writing songs and i had i was completely relaxed about really sending him anything 
it uh, just hoping that something would stick and and you know lucky guy was one of those and then uh, so there was something else too that really got us started and I thought you know we might get four or five songs out of it and then we wound up getting twelve uh, ten of which are on the album one's on a B side and then there's one called Patagonia that we never released that's just a fun song. Um, and then uh, after the, we we did some, I think we went to, well, we did. We went to Australia on that record and we went to Spain and we did a UK tour and, and some dates here in the States as well, um, LA and certainly Memphis. And, but, you know, then we started... Uh, I came up with some other ideas and did, that initiated, uh, you know, doing a second album together. And, and you know, these things I'd sing into Luther's uh, uh, voicemail initially, and then phones got sophisticated enough where I could record something, or at least I, I, maybe I got sophisticated enough to figure out how to record it and send it to him. But, you know, it'd be lyrics and melody line and... Uh, I'd send that and then Luther might send me, you know, uh, uh, a lyric and, and, and some guitar or just some guitar chords with a chorus in mind, or, you know, it just got to where it was certainly truly a, 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 a great, for me, a, a, a great collaboration. It's, uh, cause it really is kind of a 50, 50 sort of thing. And it's and it's making music for the love of making music, and seems like it's not surrounded by so much turmoil that that you know other you know like the big star project always seem to sort of seem to have at least in the early times. Yeah, well, nobody's life is is uh, dependent on this. I uh, so it takes some of the pressure off, or all the pressure off, really, because it's a right. pursuit of gee, let's see if we can do this and it'll be exciting if we do. And, and we did. Now we've written, I don't know, 32 songs together, uh, which is, you know, 28 more than I thought we were going to do. <laughs> uh, and I'm excited about the new record and, and the possibilities with that and what we can do, uh, where we can go and to perform it. Uh, want to go definitely go back to Australia and and back to the UK and come on up to Chicago, come up to Chicago. Yeah. We've been to Chicago, played uh ginger man there. Oh, nice. Actually. So we, I'm we sorry, had, I missed you at ginger man. That would have been a fantastic place to see you. Yeah. That was fun. Pat Sansone joined us on some things and cause Wilco had played the night before there in Chicago. G man. They've got, they've G-Man. dropped the injure. Right. <laughs> Uh, so we played around and, and, uh, and then the second record came out, uh, in, I think September of 2019. And we got a gig in here in Memphis, uh, at the green room, a killer venue in this thing called the concourse. And, um, and then everything shut down. Right. Uh, you know, we had plans to go to back to Australia and stuff and. Um, but that didn't work. And, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, it's, it really, everything starts with an idea, at least allowing or opening yourself up to 
ideas to being introduced from whatever part of the universe you're in. Um, and that got started and we got these songs written and now there's just a few overdubs to be done and it'll get mixed starting the 1st of February and probably out in late summer or early fall. Awesome. Well, I can't yeah. wait to hear it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, obviously you didn't plan it this way, but it's, there's been so much loss with, you know, like big star, uh, you know, with, with Chris, Alex and Andy, um, who passed away of cancer, like a few months after Alex and John Fry, uh, you know, you're, you're at Ardent, you're making music and in a way you're just kind of the keeper of a lot of flames at this point. And, uh, it's, it's great to hear that. I mean, that flame that, that I, I, that I keep was certainly <clears throat> fueled by so many amazingly talented people. And certainly the spark and the ignition was John Fry, I think. And, uh, and so his, and all the people he inspired and mentored uh, in his life was just amazing. So, you know, I'm, I'm, Whatever I can do, however I can uh, uh, make people aware of that, and, and uh, you know, I'm glad to do. We could do a whole episode on John Fry's story because he is the unsung hero of a lot of this as well. He definitely is. Uh, there would be no big star had it not been for John Fry. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's, I've always enjoyed, I, I remember, you know, just having a great time talking to you 29 years ago when uh, I saw you in Columbia, Missouri. And and I've just enjoyed your playing and singing and just music making for so long. And you, you're someone who just comes off as just like a very centered, normal person in, in, a, in a business that, you know, is taking down a lot of people. And I just appreciate that you're you're there doing what you're doing so thank you and thanks for um, being so generous and you know insightful and thoughtful on this uh conversation hey i'm I, you know i'm glad you're interested being in a new band like those pretty wrongs it's uh it takes me back to that point where you know you're you're you what you're trying to do is get people's attention to listen and uh and it's kind of tough for people getting started so I, I mean, I just always kept that that feeling of when people got interested, just to appreciate that interest. So definitely appreciate that. And one thing I don't think we talked about was did we talk about the reissue of our first two albums on curation? curation? No. Uh, well, the, I have the, the, I have the craft reissues uh, that came out. Was that? Oh no, though, that's Big Star. But this is. Uh, oh, those, you're talking about the yeah the the those uh, curation records. Curation Records is reissuing our first two albums as a double vinyl LP next month. But those Pretty Wrongs albums. Yeah. And so we're excited about that. Uh, Brent Rademacher, who's a man called Gospel Beach as well, runs Curation. And he kind of picked it up and, you know, was a fan. And, and uh, so now we have an outlet for those and uh, the reissues and we have an outlet for our third record. So things are good. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, double vinyl. I know I've, I've been on a total vinyl kick, so I would love to chase those down on vinyl. Yeah. Fun things continue to happen. So. Yeah, I know what I was saying, because I was saying also that there were the craft reissues of the Big Star, uh, number one in Radio City, that sound really good. And, and I didn't know if there was like some sort of 50th anniversary thing coming up as well, but there have been 
I mean, like there's Newberry comics, colored vinyl versions of those records. Like there, there, there are all sorts of versions now you couldn't find it when it came out, but now, you know, you get the blue one and the gold one and you know, the red and white one. <laughs> That's too funny. Great talking to you, Jody. And I look you forward too, Mark. to talking and hearing you again. It's okay. You. Thanks so much. Take care. That's it for episode 21 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to the talented and always gracious Jody Stevens. You can catch him playing with Golden Smog at First Avenue in Minneapolis on April 2nd and 3rd. And you should check out his recent music in Those Pretty Wrongs, which can be ordered from the band's website, thoseprettywrongs.com. Big Star's number one record, Radio City, Big Star's third, Sister Lovers, some live sets, and a later reunion album, In Space, are all widely available, so now you have no excuse. Also, follow Jody on Twitter at Jody underscore Big Star. Thanks to the Carol Pop team, including web developer Marty Rosenbaum and Luke Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who is a big star in his own right. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Yeah.